0: Our text today comes from Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 36, and it reads, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and ugly, attractive and plump, they fed on the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, um, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep again and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted up seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, when pharaoh was angry and his servants put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard we dreamed on the same night he and i each having a dream with its own interpretation a young hebrew was there with us a servant of the captain of the guard when we were told when we told him he interpreted our dreams to us giving us the interpretation to each Man, according to his dream, and as he interpreted to us, so it came out, I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged.
1: Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Uh, Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin." such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream: seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was none who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after the seven years. be unknown in the land by the reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, set him over the land of Egypt, Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers of the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather up all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine.
2: Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who uh, uh, whom we've not had a chance to meet, my name is James Walden, uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, I'd like to welcome people in the YouTube world. I realize we've sort of been neglecting them, though we know that many are, are, are home watching. And so um, grateful that you're participating this morning with us as well. Uh, and on that note, last week I asked everyone uh, to, uh, if they would, just on... Uh, uh, the chance that they had a, a moment to just share via text their prayer requests and their praise reports. And uh, the elders were sort of overwhelmed uh, with, with prayers and it was wonderful, so thank you guys. Um, I, I want to do, I genuinely want to thank you for the encouragement of that. It's so good to know not only what the saints are, are burdened with and what they're carrying and how we can come alongside you in prayer, but also the, prayer, the praise reports. Are just so encouraging of how God is is answering prayer how he is blessing people Uh, and so I want to encourage you too in YouTube land uh, to do that even if you're watching this later in the day there's a link on the screen uh, for that prayer request so uh, I encourage you to all of us that are here today to to, to do that again uh, this week and to share with us what is God doing in your life and how can we do that together and share that together well With that said, let's turn our attention to Genesis 40, where God is certainly, though seemingly absent, very active uh, in the life of Joseph. Well, and uh, particularly through dreams. Have you had any good dreams lately? You know, throughout the ancient world and around uh, the world, in all different cultures, dreams have been understood To have been important and meaningful. Uh, Dreams were often, if not always, but often seen as uh, harbingers, portents, omens of the gods, oracles of the divine, especially when revealed to those in authority and rulers and kings as the uh, gods-led empires. Even in our modern world, where we've sort of emptied the world of ghosts and gods, Uh, We're fascinated with dream interpretation. Uh, Sigmund Freud wrote in his book called Interpretation of Dreams, The interpretation of dreams is the royal road to a knowledge of the unconscious. In other words, if you really want to know someone, figure out what they dream about. Dreams for Freud revealed the self, but not much else. In the ancient world, including Israel, they revealed not just truths about us, but sometimes truths from God. We see this uh, in the prophets. Prophets like Daniel would have visions in dreams. Uh, Even uh, in the last days, the prophet Joel promised that when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. He says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams. They were sources of divine revelation. And not just within Israel, among the people of God. In our own narrative, we've seen so far that God gave a dream to the Canaanite king Abimelech in the days of Abraham. He gave a dream to Laban, Jacob's crooked uncle in Aram. And now he gives a dream to Pharaoh in Egypt in the days of Joseph. God, it seems, is a talking God. As Francis Schaeffer wrote, he is there and he is not silent. God appears to be talking all the time, speaking to the world in all manner of ways. But does God really reveal himself in dreams today? Daryl Carlson, the founder and president of Training Leaders International writes this. In 2007, Dudley Woodbury and others published a study that recounted interviews with 750 former Muslims who had converted to evangelical Christianity. Many of the reasons they gave for their conversion would be expected, the love of God revealed in Jesus, a changed view about the Bible, uh, an attraction to Christians who loved others well, but one reason might come as a surprise, the experience of a dream they believed came from God. These study results aren't isolated. Mission Frontiers Magazine has reported that out of 600 Muslim converts, 25% experienced a dream that led to their conversion. The great missionary and artist from the 19th century, uh, Lilius Trotter, if you don't know about her, read her, read her. She's wonderful, also reported dreams, of, uh, dreams in her day driving Muslims to Christ. Perhaps you've heard about this phenomenon. But how do we know whether such dreams are true, whether they're reliable sources of truth, whether they actually come from God? And if God is speaking to us in whatever ways, how can we know what he means? Dreams are often confusing. In Egypt, we know from Egyptologists, whole stacks of books were written on how to interpret dreams, and it's no different today. How can we understand what's being said to us? We need a reliable interpreter, a faithful reader of God's revelation who himself will reveal God faithfully to us. Who can do that? The author to the Hebrews writes this. He says, long ago, at many times, in many diverse ways, including dreams, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I submit this is the one who we can reliably trust to interpret God's revelation to us. And would you pray with me as I go to him and ask for his interpretation and his guidance. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are there and you are not silent. You have been speaking to humanity from the beginning. Through creation, you pour out speech to us day after day. If only we would hear it, if only we had eyes to see it. But Lord, you have inundated us with your revelation. There isn't a flower of the field or a blade of grass that isn't meant to display your beauty. Lord, through dreams and and all sorts of wisdom that's found in the world, you have revealed aspects of yourself. But most clearly, you have spoken to us through your prophets, your apostles, and most unambiguously and fully in your Son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we invite you now to reveal the glory of God to us that we might know that we might rest in your truth. We pray in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Well, how do we know these strange dreams of Pharaoh are from God, let alone what they mean? The author here gives us two important witnesses corroborating these dreams. First, history. That is to say, the dreams are fulfilled or realized in due time. And two, we find a reliable interpreter who proves himself trustworthy over time. We trust not just facts of history, we trust a person. In other words, we know these dreams are from God because they find fulfillment as predicted and interpreted by a young Hebrew prophet named Joseph, who proved eerily accurate in interpreting another set of dreams between a cupbearer and a baker in prison. As the cupbearer said, in our text this morning, chapter 41, verse 13, as he, Joseph, interpreted it, so it came about. So let's take a look at that fulfillment of the dreams of these two prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker. Verses chapter 40, if you would turn in your Bibles there with me to so the next chapter beforehand, verses 1 through 8. Sometime after this, after he'd been thrown in prison, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker, or chief baker, committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in his custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, or officers who were with them in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, but there's no one to interpret them. We need books, and there's no library in this prison. (laughs) And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Well, they do, out of desperation. Tell them to this fellow prisoner who has charge over them. And it begins with the cupbearer's dream. He tells of a dream where he sees a vine grow with three branches, and immediately the branches bud, grapes grow, he takes the grapes in his dream, crushes them into Pharaoh's cup, and hands it to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, So this is clear what this means. The three vines are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. He will restore you to the office of cupbearer. You will be vindicated and restored to your position. Now, we should keep in mind, this isn't the kitchen staff. The baker and the cupbearer were high official roles. If you wanna know more what a cupbearer did, you can read the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah was cupbearer to the Persian king, and he had tremendous authority. The cupbearer was sort of overseer of the vineyards all the way from the growing of the grapes to the, to the last drop that the cup of wine that the, the king would have drank, to protect the king from a common form of assassination in the ancient world, poisoning. So he had to be trusted by the king, a trusted advisor. And the chief baker also ran the whole staff, most likely, of um, the empire, of the, uh, of the emperor's house. So this was, these were high officials. He thought this wasn't menial tasks. And so they're fearful for their lives because some plot had been exposed, perhaps. The king took offense at them and they're in prison. And here, here the, 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 the cupbearer is promised that he will be vindicated. And he is, as we see in chapter 41. The baker, however, not so much. So let's look at that. Verses 16 and following. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, like, hey, you're going to get vindicated and be restored, he said, that sounds good. So he shares his dream to Joseph. I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the upper basket, there was all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Okay, sounds familiar. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you which is a new different nuance. (laughs) That does not mean being restored. It means possibly having your head removed or being hung by your head. Or as I think he probably had his head taken off and was impaled. But at any rate, he goes on. He will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree or impale you on a tree, either way, and the birds will eat the flesh from you, from your body. This is not a favorable word. But what do we read? On the third day, in fulfillment of the scriptures, which was Pharaoh's birthday or perhaps his coronation anniversary, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. We'll pause there. Now, you'll notice the first thing uh, Joseph does here is he, he makes it very clear that the interpretation for these dreams will not be found in a sorcerer's book. These come from God alone. And so he says that immediately. Only God can interpret this. He says something very similar to Pharaoh. Do you remember when we read that just a moment ago? When, when Pharaoh tells his dreams and says, I'm told you can figure this stuff out. Tell me what this means. He says, it's not in me. I cannot do this. God alone can interpret history. God alone can interpret the future and dreams that predict the future. And in three times, he stresses this to Pharaoh. God is showing you what he is about to do, what he is about to accomplish. This is God's purpose God alone interprets history and predicts the future because God alone controls history in the future. This happens, again, a very familiar scene later in the prophets. The prophet Daniel, another Hebrew servant in the house of a foreign king who has disturbing dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar is not very naive. He's a very skeptical man. So he asks his magicians and his wise men not just to interpret his dreams, as Pharaoh does. He asks them, if you have insight from the gods, I want you to even tell me what I dreamt and then interpret it. And they're like, nobody's ever asked for this. This is absurd. And Nebuchadnezzar, in Patience, that sadly often marks earthly rulers, says, fine, I will kill all of you then. And so he goes after all the wise men. Daniel steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. And here's Daniel's interaction. It's on the screen with King Nebuchadnezzar. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that he's asked for. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And then Daniel goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream and then interpret it. In response to which Nebuchadnezzar says... Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Only God can predict the future with accuracy because only God controls it. And this is a test the prophets often use. If I'm a true prophet, my prediction will come true. If if it doesn't, I'm a liar. In fact, Isaiah uses this reality to taunt idol worshipers in the book of Isaiah. Listen to what Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, set forth your case, you idol worshipers, says Yahweh. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what's going to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we can consider them, that we might know what their outcome will be. Declare to us the things that are to come. Tell us what comes afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we might be terrified. Alas, you cannot, this is Isaiah's point. I alone, God, have predicted the future. I have predicted the judgments of Israel, the salvation of Israel through a Persian king. I alone am God. When Christ appears on the scene 700 some years after Isaiah in fulfillment of so many of Isaiah's prophecies, Jesus of Nazareth fulfills hundreds upon hundreds of Old Testament prophecies during the short span of his birth, his life and ministry in Israel, his rejection by his own people and his execution by crucifixion, not to mention his resurrection three days later. And this prophet of prophets predicts the future to us. And we know it's true because many of the things he predicted have already come about. He predicted the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. And 35-plus years later, Rome came in and raised the temple. He predicted the emergence and and the survival of the church through the ages. And here we are 2,000 years later sitting in this congregation, one star in the galaxy of the universal church. He predicted the coming Gentile mission. That though many would forfeit their seats at Abraham's table, many would come from the east and the west and sit and dine with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He also has predicted things in the far distant future that we still await. Most remarkably, Jesus taught on multiple occasions that on the last day there would be a judgment. That wasn't new. But that he was the judge. I will raise the dead with my voice and I will weigh them in the scales of my justice. And you know what he says? He says their fate, the fate of humanity, will turn on their response to me. The purpose of the prophetic predictions of the future Is not a call to resign ourselves to a certain fate. No, the purpose of prophetic predictions of the future are to call us to a faith filled embrace of a certain promise. And that's what we see here with Pharaoh's dreams coming true. Look in your Bibles to Isaiah 41, chapter 41, Isaiah, sorry, Genesis 41. Verses 53. Kids, if you're falling along on your sheets, we're going to start in verse 53, not 51. That was my bad. 41, verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred, just as predicted, came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, do whatever he says. In some sense, Pharaoh's dream didn't come true, right? Because the, 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 the dream was that the, 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 this, this bad grain was going to eat the good grain such that the good grain, the good years would be totally forgotten and famine would eat up the land, but it doesn't happen. Why? Because Joseph gives a plan in response to this prediction to bring blessing in light of this coming famine. He has a policy proposal that pleases the king, and they act on it. The purpose of prophecies is not passive acceptance of a fate, but action to enter into blessing. it's, It's an invitation, these predictions, into a new future, to a new destiny. It's an invitation to hope. When Jesus tells the disciples that he will come on the last day and divide humanity into sheep and into goats, and he will invite the sheep into the kingdom of his Father, and he will consign the goats into eternal judgment. It's not a fate that's destined for his hearers. It's an invitation to count ourselves among the sheep, to respond and become his disciples. Listen, Jesus is giving you his dream, his certain dream of the future, and you're invited to share in it. If you trust him, and speaking of certain futures, there there are three sets of dreams in Joseph's story. We see two here with Pharaoh. We see two dreams between the prisoners. But remember, Joseph himself had two dreams. He dreamt also agricultural image of sheaves bowing down to his sheave, his brothers. And then this cosmic dream of the stars and sun and moon bowing down to his light. And we see that that dream, too, is being fulfilled in this moment. It's beginning to be fulfilled. Look at verses 37 of chapter 41 and following. After he proposes this policy plan of how to prepare for the famine, we get this response. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, and my wise men knew nothing of it, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You will be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And he goes on to put on his signet ring, to give him fine linen and gold, to marry him to this aristocratic family of the, 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 the priesthood of on. He He puts Joseph in second chariot. He commands everyone to bow down when Joseph arrives. Joseph becomes second in command of the highest empire in the known world. What a reversal of fortunes. (laughs) Remember his dream? Your brothers will bow down? Well, all of Egypt bows down to him. In chapter 42, next week, we'll see his brothers come before him bowing down. God is fulfilling his dream for Joseph. We know God is speaking to us not only because the things predicted find their fulfillment in their proper time, but also because the divinely appointed interpreter of these things himself proves faithful, trustworthy over time. So that takes us to the second point of Joseph's faithfulness. Look at verses, uh, going back to chapter 40, we see that Joseph throughout our story is faithful, he's trustworthy in plenty and in want when he's thriving and when he's suffering he's faithful and so he recounts his sufferings in chapter 40 look at chapter 40 verses 14 and 15 after he's given a favorable answer to the cupbearer saying you're going to return you're going to be out of here now please remember me who's still stuck in here only remember me Joseph says, when it is well with you, please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this jailhouse. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. In the pit, there's the same word that described the pit his brothers threw him in in Dothan. He was in a pit there, then he entered the house of Potiphar and then because of a false accusation, was thrown into another pit. Joseph knows what it's like to be abused by power. He was abused by his older brothers. He knows what family abuse looks like. He was abused in Potiphar's house. He knows what political power looks like, social power. He was abused in jail as he had no business going there. This was a false imprisonment. This was not a just trial. He knows the abuse of imperial power. But what I love about Joseph is he doesn't grow cynical. He also sees by the policy proposal he gives to Pharaoh that political and imperial power are also good when they're used to bring flourishing to others. And he himself now occupies a place of great imperial power rather than than abdicating this role. Rather than disavowing the power he has, he owns it and uses it for good. And what a lesson for us in a day and age where we are cynical about power, and not without justification, but how much we need to redeem power. Joseph redeems power, and he uses it powerfully for good. I mean, look what he does in verses 46 and following of chapter 41. It says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's a young man with such power. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, just as he predicted, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up the grain like the sand of the sea it was in such abundance, until he couldn't measure anymore. He was faithful to execute the plan Pharaoh entrusted to him. With all this power, he remained faithful. And he remained faithful to his heritage. He didn't get sucked into the Egyptian imperial system, absorbed into this foreign culture. He maintained, even though he looked like an Egyptian, he shaved his head, his face. He's wearing Egyptian royal clothing, the signet rings. He's married to an Egyptian woman, right? Like, it looks like we're losing him. But look what happens when his sons are born. Verses 50 through 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenoth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, which is Hebrew. He gives them the names of his forefathers this Hebrew, in the Hebrew tongue. Manasseh, which sounds like forget. For, he says, God made me forget all my hardships in my father's house, in Potiphar's house, in the jail house. Now I'm in Pharaoh's house. And then he had a second son. The name of the second son he called Ephraim, also Hebrew for double fruit, I think. Brian Galt's nodding his head yes, so I take that. (laughs) Double, it sounds like a, isn't that a bubble gum, a gum, double fruit? Juicy fruit, that's juicy fruit. And what does he say about the double fruit? He says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So you see, Joseph remains loyal to his identity as a child of promise, as a child of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. Power does not corrupt him here. He uses it faithfully. And we know that he can handle it faithfully because he handled it so well in his suffering. He had power in Potiphar's house, though he was a slave. He had power in the prison, though he was a prisoner. And he utilized it well. He's faithful with little will prove faithful with much. How much more trustworthy is Jesus who suffered immensely and was faithful to the, his dying breath, entrusted his own spirit to the God whose wrath he drank. You can trust Jesus now that he's exalted as king, authority over all, Lord of lords and king of kings. You can trust him all the more with your lives. He has proven trustworthy in his sufferings. His power now is a faithful and good power that will bless you. You can trust him. The foundation of our faithfulness is not ourselves but God. Last point here in verse 23 of chapter 40 that we skipped over shows you the secret of Jacob's, or sorry, Joseph's trustworthiness. Verse 23, after he had begged the cupbearer to remember him, what does 23 say? Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Men failed him time and time again. But God remembered him. Throughout we read, God remembered Joseph. In fact, on the screen from chapter 39, we read this. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison in the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. That's the same word Joseph uses when he says to the cupbearer, Show me this kindness. It's the same word in Hebrew. Hesed. Show me this kindness. The cupbearer does, and he forgets. God does. The foundation of. Our trustworthiness is God's trustworthiness. The reason why we can be faithful is because we can have faith in him. No matter where we are on that J curve, in the pit where we're ascending out of it, he is faithful. And his faith has led him to be a very entrusted servant. Potiphar entrusted everything to him. Said, All the only thing he worried about was what the food he put in his mouth. The only thing not entrusted to him, Joseph said, was his marriage, was Potiphar's marriage, which even then when that was violated by Potiphar's wife, Joseph proved trustworthy. In prison, the warden said he just handed everything over, didn't worry about a thing. Wouldn't that be nice, You, you all of us who have employees, wouldn't that be nice? I don't have to worry about a thing, they just do it all, take care of it, right? Didn't worry about a thing. Joseph is so trustworthy. And here in Pharaoh's house, the same thing. Pharaoh says, whatever you say goes. When the people come to him, like, hey, where's the bread? We're starving. He's like, go to Joseph. Do whatever he tells you. Reminds me of what Mary, Jesus' mother, says. When they're like, hey, we're out of wine. It's like, go to Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Why was Joseph so trustworthy? Why is Jesus so trustworthy? Because they both trusted in God. Joseph knew God had a dream for him. It was a dream about sheaves and stars and moons, that God was going to exalt him. When he was in that pit in Dothan, he still believed God was going to keep that promise. When he was in the pit of prison, he still believed God was going to keep that promise. And Jesus, in all of his sufferings, knew God would hold true to his word. I love this scene. Last last text here for us before we close out. From the life of Jesus. It's the Last Supper, the night before his passion, his suffering. On the screen, you'll see it. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very, very end. I love that. Though he knew they were about to abandon him, he loved them nonetheless. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, he knew his destiny. I know where this is going. And that he had come from God. He knew where he came from. And that he was going back to God. He knew where he was going. Rose from the supper. And what did he do? laid aside his outer garments and took on the, the garb of a slave. He took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water in a basin jar, kneeled down, and started washing feet because he knew his royal identity. And he hands that identity to us. He says to the disciples in John's gospel after this, guys, I'm going to my Father, and if I go there, I'm going to prepare your rooms Because if I go there, you're coming with me. And just the same love the Father has for me on the day when he said to me at my baptism, this is my beloved son and I am absolutely delighted in him and nothing's changed. That same love he has for me, the Father has for you. He loves you. Just like Joseph knew he had daddy's favorite jacket and he had God's promise of ruling he knew no matter what came his way, the future was bright. He knew he had hope, and so he could endure faithfully. In fact, he could serve others. And that's true for us. Guys, who, who has what they hope for? If you have it, you're not hoping for it anymore. But as Paul says, if we're still hoping for what God's promised us, which is to be with Jesus, to reign with him forever, then we wait for it with patience. And you know what we can do in the meantime? We can pour it all out. We can pour it all out. We can love others and serve. We can suffer loss. We can give up. Because the future is certain if we will just Trust Him. Do you trust Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the promise you've given us. The promise of everlasting life, of being co heirs with Christ, reigning on a new heavens and a new earth. And now we groan with the Spirit, we groan with the, the whole created order, groaning for this. Restoration to come because it isn't here yet. Lord, give us patience to wait and joy as we hope.